Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and I think my favorite female villain is Bellatrix Lestrange. Ooh, Harry Potter. Yes. I just like her. I mean, she's horrible, and I hate her. And <laughs> But you like her. Yeah. Okay, so I'm Misty. And I think the female villain I am most interested in is Rebecca from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, a show on TV. She's the main character. You love this show I love, and so you know what? much. I'm going to talk about it until somebody else watches it with me. I think other people watch it. I don't think so. I haven't met anybody yet. Well, you don't really meet people. That's true. I mean, in your C-SPAN closet, you're not meeting a lot of <laughs> it's others. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and C-SPAN. Yeah. My life is sad. But it's a musical show. It is, and she's the main character, but she's also the villain in a lot of it. Because she's the crazy ex-girlfriend. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. Okay, but it's a Even t- though that's a sexist term. Sure, but she's playing on the trope. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's satire. Okay, well. So what are we talking about today? Not crazy ex-girlfriend, unfortunately for you. <laughs> fortunately day. for the rest of us. One day. Uh, we're talking about female criminals. And just to be clear, we're not... Gonna, we're not pro-criminal? We are not pro-criminal, but we are in fa- pro-examining uh, how female criminals are depicted and discussed and represented. And we're also just kind of fascinated by the stories and what the stories tell us in general about history and culture. Well, and how... Women have been looked at as either this, you know, this group that brought the downfall of all mankind, right? With original sin. Right. Or they can't possibly be murderers because they're so virtuous. Yeah. And and, there's a lot of gray area in between that. And when they are murderers, it's very subversive. So it's, you know, Salem witch trials. Right. Or very salacious, like Lizzie Borden. Yes. Which, speaking of... You want to sing the song? I don't want to... Y'all don't want me to sing the song. But I want to start with her. So, let's yeah, let's start with Lizzie Borden, because I think if we say female criminals, mm-hmm. notorious, at least in our... In America, in, yes. In our country, Lizzie Borden probably comes to mind. At least top five. Yeah. Everybody's top five. Right. So, Lizzie Borden. Yay, history. <laughs> Lizzie Borden. 127 years ago. So, 1892, for those of us bad at math. Yeah. 1892. I'm not good at math. It was already written down for me. Don't, <laughs> I don't want to give anyone the impression I knew that off the top of my head. She is probably going to commit a murder. Actually, two murders. She probably committed murder? Yes. I mean, I think she did it. Okay. But there is some... Um, controversy and debate about this did we have dna evidence we did not we didn't get any csis on the case no oh not even 1800s version of that okay there there were there's there was some forensic science in the 1800s yeah but it's like which way did the crows fly i mean mean, it was like i think that's when they were starting to understand fingerprints maybe yeah right around this time so um lizzie borden is single she's living with her father and stepmother Okay. There are a couple of different ways to present this story. So it kind of depends on if you think she's guilty or not. How we. I didn't know there was a question of whether she was guilty. There is a theory that there was this random transient that wandered into the house that killed her father and stepmother and somehow avoided killing Lizzie and that she was framed. Hmm. I will say that is a minority opinion. Okay. The vast majority of people believe that she committed these murders. Yeah. I mean, and people still talk about her 127 years later. Yes. So there's still something fascinating to us about female violence, maybe. 
Well, and I think what stands out about this case is that when you think about females and murder generally, mm-hmm. it's poison. Yeah. It's something that's a little more subtle, right? I mean, I always hear that on the 9,052 crime shows I watch. <laughs> They're like, women tend to kill by using poison or... Yeah. Because it's less physical. Yeah. It was not a subtle no, murder. There was nothing subtle about this. What weapon did she use? Uh, I believe it was an axe. Yep. She used an axe. Mm-hmm. You probably know that from like the little elementary school the- rhyme that for some reason we all still know. Yeah. And what was the other nursery rhyme that we were singing about? It was It was like about leprosy or something? Thing. Ring oh, around, Ring Around the Rosie? Yeah. yeah, Black Death. Yeah, that's not leprosy. That's the plague. <laughs> yes. Why are we singing about Lizzie Borden and the plague? It's children. And then people are like, well, I don't know, why is this generation fascinated with true crime? I don't know, maybe because we were singing about <laughs> murders and nobody stopped us as children. Well, every generation is fascinated by true crime. Let's just start there i mean look at lizzie borden yeah this was sensational even back then yeah and even back then they had highly sensational highly gendered approaches to discussing it right like it was lesbian hysteria well she committed these murders because she's a lesbian or uh, yeah and all lesbians are hysterical crazy women was the belief at the time that's not what i'm saying is true also i think some people think that she like literally their their old-fashioned notion of hysteria that she was like on her period and it made her murder people there's another notion about hysteria relating to women do you know about the floating uterus no <laughs> so this is one reason that we wore corsets allegra is because your uterus can float up into like where your lungs and heart are i thought we were worried about it falling out well we're worried about both oh my god so it could fall out Okay. But also, it can, that's why you can't do too much exercise because right. it can fall out. Right. But if it floats up, it causes women to be hysterical. So wearing the corset kept all the organs in the right spot. Did, did this ever sound like it was a good idea? I, I mean, it, it, it just sounds like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Women went into the corset at the age of three. Can you imagine that? Being in a corset at the age of three? No. So, I mean, Lizzie Borden obviously had some environmental things to be angry about. Yeah. I don't know if that justifies axe murder. I'm going to say it doesn't. No. I mean, no. But it is interesting to know, to think about what drives a person to do it. It's also interesting to know what drives people to keep talking about her. Yes. And I think that's actually the more interesting thing with Lizzie Borden. Yeah. I mean, so part of it is this, I guess, this mystery so it's, if, it's, if there's no certainty, then our minds are looking for certainty and searching for an answer. There's not very many female killers, especially not of this. Not well-known ones, right? for sure. So scarcity leads us to kind of cling on to ideas and want to talk about them a little bit more. But really, I think people are obsessed with it because she completely subverts what our expectations are for females, for young women, and even for female criminals. And right. most of the rest of the female criminals we're going to talk about, historical, literary, or televised today, they were not hitting people with axes dozens of times. Well, and I think the other really interesting thing about Lizzie Borden is that it was so, is it was just so beyond the scope of people's imagination at the yeah. time. Unfathomable. Yeah, that's the yeah. word. That she gets off. Yeah. She's acquitted. She is? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, you thought she was convicted? No. I mean, I have very weird, I, I mean, I have like a, a an image of her in my mind of what I think she looked like. And I feel like I just assumed she went to prison and died. No, that is not what happened. <laughs> okay. Well. So she was tried for the crime. She was tried uh, June 20th, 1893. And then the jury took all of an hour and a half. An hour and a half. To decide that a woman could not possibly have committed these crimes. Huh. And so So she is released. So sexism worked in her favor. Yes. Interesting. Yes. 
So you thought she went to jail, right? Yes. Uh, so she didn't do that, right? Because she's acquitted. Yeah. But she also gets to inherit her father's money because <laughs> she's not guilty. That's that that is interesting. Yeah. But I think that's why we're fascinated with her, right? Yeah. Because women aren't supposed to do this. She did it. Murderers are supposed to go to jail. She didn't. Yeah. So she subverts everything. And then she profited from it. Yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And what, then I, what was her motive? That's been debated. Okay, Quite a so, bit. so maybe another reason we're fascinated by it. Because I feel like when we talk about female criminals, specifically female murderers, they're always, or they tend to be motivated by revenge yes. or insanity. And those or, are two or, of the theories. Yeah, or jealousy. So, and that's another theory. She's jealous of her stepmom. And so there's she, yeah. a theory that her father had committed sexual assault against her and her sister. There's a theory that she's just out for their money. But... We don't have a confession from her. Yeah. And she's not going to be like, dear diary, you know, today I killed my dad. What's interesting is those are all the the speculated motives of the Menendez brothers. Oh, huh. A hundred years later. They wanted their parents' money. There was a sexual assault allegation. They were jealous of their parents' affections toward each other. So, yeah. I mean. So we still talk about all these things. Yeah. So I think the fictional portrayal of Lizzie in the past hundred and something years has really taken on a life of its own. It almost completely <laughs> divorced from the actual Lizzie Borden. Yeah, because, I mean. Because you knew she was a murderer, but you didn't know about the trial. Right. And the, tr- the truth of it is that she, that these are, of course, horrific crimes. Yes, absolutely. But for some reason, people can create lighthearted or humorous pop culture or cultural texts, right? Yes. We have musicals. At least two that I could find. Comedic musicals. One was 1955. I think one is current. Current. Well, last 10 or so years. Okay. Current to you. Current to a historian. <laughs> 100 years later, 1959, you know, 100 years after she's born, yeah. we're making this musical about her. And from the reviews I read, it wasn't great. Yeah. Just the musical was bad. But here she is popping up in pop culture, right? Yeah. And it's interesting that we feel comfortable talking about a murder. Two murders. Two murders. Yeah. A double murder, a a patricide, right? Mm -hmm. If she's guilty, yes. That people, wow, you are really like lawyering this. Well, just because the historical record says that this is what we have. I mean, I'm 95% certain she did it. Okay, but you're not 100%. So a jury you're going to hedge. Found she was not guilty. And so we have to hedge it a little bit. And I think that because she is in co- total violation of gender norms in terms of the method of the crime, then we try to force as many other gender norms as we can on her and say, you know, she did it for these very female specific reasons we try to put her back in that box as much as we can yeah and 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 the reason we're still fascinated by her is that she's subverting all of it i i can't explain why we're so comfortable talking about it in a lighthearted way i think it's the passage of time right we didn't know these people they probably don't have we're but we're not making fun of the salem i guess we are making fun of the salem witches and hocus pocus a little bit yeah but the passage of time makes it easier to discuss okay i don't know if we could have the same kind of lighthearted conversation about like you said the menendez brothers that's a little too soon yeah but 125 years ago we can fudge it and make fun of it a little bit so is the house still standing the house is still standing you can actually go tour the house oh why would you want to do that why do people go to salem at halloween and go on witch tours that i don't understand because i mean we the historical record has verified and of course logic and science and reasoning had verified that they weren't actually doing witchcraft 
So I don't know <laughs> why you would go look for witches in a place where we verified there are no witches. But there's also a, a Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast that you can stay at. I think it's just this fascination. And it's and it's and I mean, it's still a Halloween costume that sometimes people dress up as right. They put on a black wig. Did she have long black hair or am I just confusing her with Wednesday Adams and the girl from the <laughs> ring? I don't know. I have this image of her in my mind. Now I don't know where it came from. I think she's usually described as being fairly plain. And so it would have been long, dark hair, brown or black. And then a very like plain dress. So I think we have to keep that in mind too. How old was she? Um, She was 32. Oh. I also have the image of hers being like young, like 17. And I think the reason you have that image is because she was unmarried. Oh, so all unmarried women are maidens. Yes. And young. Okay. And need their father's guidance. So I want to talk about... Some more history. Some more history before we get into the literary side of things. So I want to tell you about the most famous American murderess that you probably don't know. We're going to use the word murderess? I am. Okay. Oh, wait. There's so much in this story you're going to love. So I want to talk to you about Lavina Fisher. Ever heard of her? No. You haven't told me about her yet. I think because you want to get my reactions live yes, on the podcast. Yes, yes, So I'm excited. And you don't know about her, right? No. Okay, so she's married to John Fisher. We don't know a whole lot about her early life. We've talked about this before. The records just aren't there because she's not famous till, you know, she's convicted of a murder. Okay, sure. Oh, yeah, so we don't know when she was born. No, we don't know much about her early life or her childhood or anything like that. Okay. What we do know is that her and her husband operated the Six Mile Wayfair House. It's six miles outside of Charleston, South Carolina. So just far enough away that they had uh, borders that would stay overnight going to and from Charleston. When is this taking place? All this is taking place in 1819, right outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Like, like an Airbnb. Okay. Or just a B&B, I yes. guess, without the air. Yes. All right. So a wave, so a wayfarer house. So people stopping in for the night on their way to or from Charleston, the bustling metropolis. Of Actually, the- yes. <laughs> because it's a port city. Of uh, South Carolina. Char- yes, Charleston. In South Carolina. Okay. In 1819. Yes. One story is that there is a boarder who asks for a room and they say they're booked, but then she takes them into their kitchen and she's just chatting him up. What are you doing? Where are you going? What business are you in? And Why? Then, well, then after finding out he's actually got some money on him, suddenly there's a room open and would he like to stay the night? Okay. And then she offered him some tea and this man didn't like tea. John Peoples was his name. So he uh, pretended to drink it, but then dumped it out when she wasn't looking. Okay. So then he goes up to the room and then he started thinking about it. It was like, man, it was really weird. She was asking me all those questions. I'm not sure about this. So he decides not to sleep in the bed. And instead, he sleeps in a chair right by the door. And in the middle of the night, he's woken up and the bed is sinking under the floor. What? (laughs) What? Wait, 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 wait. He stops at a hotel bed and breakfast inn. Yes. He's told there's no room. Right. We're out of space. But please come into my dining room and let me offer you some cake. Okay. He pretends to drink the tea. Because he doesn't want to be rude. While revealing personal details about himself and the amount of money he has. Yes. Then gets up to his room and realizes, hey, that lady was creepy. Yes. But I might as well stay here. Because it's late. So I'm going to sleep in a chair. Right. What what protection did he think? I mean, did he? Well, did he the chair that? was up against the door. So he's thinking I that if they see. come in, they'll knock me out of the chair and at least I'll be awake. Okay. Because he thinks they're going to rob him. He doesn't think they're going to murder him. Okay. Okay. I was like, how did he know? Okay. So he's sleeping in a chair. Yes. And he wakes up. Because he hears a noise. And let's get back to this most exciting (laughs) moment of the story. The bed is is going into like a secret compartment. It's like lowering to the first floor. Into the floor. Yes. As though on some kind of elevator. Yes. A platform. What? So... John rightly freaks out and jumps out the window. Out the window? Yes. 
This is an amazing story. I'm so glad I didn't tell you this beforehand. He gets on his horse and he rides into Charleston and tells them there are some real weirdos at this boarding house and y'all need to go investigate. And did they? The couple's going to be arrested. They're taken to jail to await their trial. What are they arrested for? Highway robbery. There is an investigation later where they do find some human remains at their boarding house. But the crime that they eventually go up in front of a jury for again is highway robbery. Now, during the time that they're waiting for their trial, they almost escape. So this is like some almost cartoonish. Why is there not a movie about these people? I, there should be. So um, they're housed together in the jail because it'd be cruel to separate a married couple awaiting their trial. What? Yeah. And they what? use... <laughs> They use the linens to make a rope because they're on the second floor. The husband is able to scale down the rope and get away. But then he decides, well, I'm not going to leave without my wife. And if she would have come down, there'd have been nobody to hold the rope. So he goes back up and he decides to wait for her. And because of that, they are both going to be found guilty and they are going to be sent to the gallows. This is the craziest story. It's going to get crazier here in a second. Okay. There's a law at the time in South Carolina that says you cannot hang a married woman. Shut up. (laughs) What? Why? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but the prominent thought is that if a woman who is married is committing a crime, it's because her husband has either forced her to or because she's insane. And so you shouldn't punish her for what she's been compelled to do. Okay. Or if she's insane, it's her husband's job to punish her, monitor her. It's not the state's job. So when they are sent to the gallows, she is convinced that she will not be hung. She is absolutely convinced because that's the law, right? You cannot hang a married woman. South Carolina got around that. They just hung him first. And then she wasn't a married woman. She's a a widow. And there's no law against hanging a widow. The story is... Are you... And I couldn't find this in the historical record, but this is like the legend around the town, is that she went to the gallows wearing her wedding dress just to drive home the idea to everyone that she is a married woman and that if you hang her, it is outside of the law. But that didn't work. And the newspaper about their hanging and funeral says that he went to his death bravely, but that she went kicking and screaming. (laughs) Like, she wasn't stoic enough about uh, I mean, being hung. It Wouldn't it be human nature to I kind of think. go to your death kicking and screaming? So there are bones found in, outside of their Wayfarer house. Yes. So they're definitely killers. Well, see, that's, that's the thing, right? At least one of them is. But neither one of them are convicted for murder. But so you, somebody's but, murdering. But you can be hung for highway robbery? At the time, yes. Okay. So she wore her wedding dress to the gallows. And supposedly her last words are... Are, if you have a message for hell, give it to me and I will carry it. Nice. Yes. That I love. Yes. Okay, so then I want to fast forward about 100 years. Okay. And this is going to be the basis for the book slash musical slash movie Chicago. Slash play. Slash play. Chicago. So in 1924, Marine Dallas Watkins, she is going to start working as a news reporter. Okay. Now she took this job because she actually couldn't get a job doing what she really wanted to do, which was to write fiction or maybe even to be a playwright. Okay. Now uh, Chicago is going to hire her, Chicago Times, to be a sob sister. Have you heard that phrase before? No. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) I'm guessing it's not a job they... (laughs) They've signed to men. No. So this is a journalist who specializes in writing or editing stories that are designed to provoke a sentimental reaction from the reader. These are particularly used towards female criminals. So if a female is committing a crime, there must be some tragic backstory that this newspaper can send a sob sister to go investigate and then exploit to sell newspapers. You're just looking at me like... This is just so messed up. (laughs) Yes. 
So uh, Watkins is assigned to cover Murderous Row. And I'm not making that up. That's what they called it. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the movie. Okay. So that's yeah. a real thing. And this was a beat that was considered too boring for male journalists. I feel like that would be the most interesting beat. Nope. Nobody wanted to talk to the female murderers in the Chicago jail prison. Well, because they just thought like, oh, it's a story about a, a woman murderer. It's going to be a sob story. It's not going to be hard hitting news. It's not real journalism. You're just going to go talk to these women. They're going to tell you what a terrible, sad childhood they had, how men have been mean to them. You're going to write up a sort of sympathetic story of them. And that's it. Done. I feel like there's like 150 podcasts that are just that. that the basis of which are the backstory for a particular murder. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's still a fascination that we have now. Journalistic or movie or TV show, I think we're still fascinated by what drives people to kill. And I think for whatever reason, we are differently fascinated by what drives women to kill because more outside of our expectation. Obviously, we don't expect anyone to, but it's more outside of our expectation. So, I mean, journalistically, I think that it would still be a fascinating beat, but it's just, like I said, it's considered the sob story, a sob story. and there's no like real journalism there. Because I'm just going to take their version of events, right? And then I'm going to type it up and it's going to be very empathetic to them. But I'm not going to go investigate it. I'm not going to go interview people from their childhood. So it's not, quote unquote, real journalism. Okay, so we're not, they're not getting into like the true crime unpacking no, of the No, no. This is just go in, talk to these women, get a sad story that we can type up and sell newspapers. Okay. So two women. The first is Beulah. All right. So Beulah is with her boyfriend. Okay. And they've been drinking. They get into an argument. Her story is that they both reached for a gun, but she got there first. And then she waits for him to die. She does not call the authorities until he is dead and gone. So she shoots him. Yes. Sits around drinking wine. And cocktails. And waiting for him to die. Okay. And the theory is that she does that so that he has no alternative story. Oh. So that when the police get there, if he's alive at all, he might tell a different version of Okay, so he can't say it was cold-blooded murder. Right. How long did it take for him to die? The most likely scenario is that it's four hours from the time he is shot to the time that the authorities arrive. Oh my gosh. So it wasn't like he died in 15 minutes and then she picked up a phone and called. The cover story is there's an argument and that she's just defending herself. Okay. So if it is self-defense, that's a justified homicide. But she's married. Yes, but not to him. Yeah, because it says she called her husband to say she had killed a man who tried to make love to her. Yes. So a married woman. Yes. Drinking. Yes. Is this during prohibition? Yeah, it is. A married woman drinking during prohibition mm-hmm. in a bed with another man. Yes. Is it possible that she, I mean, did she say, I didn't know him, he was trying to assault me? She has a couple of different stories throughout the time, but it's pretty clear that that's a man that she was familiar with. They both reached for the gun. According to her, yes. Okay. All right, so the other woman that's on death row. Murderous row. Murderous row. I shouldn't say death row. Murderous row is Belva Gartner. Okay. And Gartner is spelled very German. Yeah. So if I'm mispronouncing that, it could be my apologies. There could be a Gartner sound in yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure. All right. She's also going to kill her lover. And this time it's the man who's married. Okay. So he's married. She's not. But they're, yes. okay. but they're together. Um, she's going to say that she was drunk at the time of the incident. Uh, she's been drinking gin. And also she, during prohibition. Also during okay. prohibition. And she's going to say that she was like basically blackout drunk. Okay. She can't remember what happened. Okay. And as far as defenses go, that's an interesting one, right? Yeah. Because she's not making any claims at all about self-defense or mm-hmm. he was trying to hurt her. 
She just doesn't know. It could have been her. It could have been some random person that attacked her too. She doesn't know. Interesting. Yes. So this is a situation where it's like she woke up covered in blood. Exactly. So like every CSI starts with this, right? Not every CSI. Um, Now she has been known to frequent the speakeasies and jazz clubs. And so that's already not great in Prohibition, right? She's known to have some um, unsavory companions at various times in her life. So both of these women go into the courtroom with things stacked against them. Right. So they were both, in one way or another, committing a form of adultery. Yes. They were both drinking. Yes. They both committed kind of a violent murder or crime. Yes. That people thought was outrageous for a woman to have committed. Yes. So it was almost more shocking. Yes. It's seen as more deviant than a man. Right. And these weren't women who, I guess the usual way that women commit murder, right, is they kill their husbands. Right. So these are women who aren't doing that. And they're doing it in an altered state of being. They're both drinking at the time. So when this goes to trial, they could have been painted in a couple different ways, right? Not very sympathetically. Yeah. But Watkins is going to paint them as women who've had the deck stacked against them, who had these violent men in their lives, that they're protecting themselves. And she covers these trials extensively. Yeah, so tell me what happened. So they, I mean, <laughs> is this another one hour deliberation, let her go type of situation? For it's them? a little longer than that. Okay. But we're going to end up with the same place as Lizzie Borden. Actually, we are going to end up at the same place because I was going to say, oh, with musicals written about you. But yes, yeah, actually, with musicals <laughs> written about exact you. exact place as Lizzie Borden. Yeah. Uh, so in the first case, which Bu- is Beulah, they both reach for the gun. Yes. Okay. Uh, she's going to argue that it's self-defense. And she uh, tells this story about how she might have been pregnant. Mm-hmm. And then when she told him she might be pregnant that's when he got crazy and tried to grab the gun and so that's why it was self-defense so that made her more sympathetic probably to yes the jury. Okay. absolutely so not only is she defending herself she's defending her possible unborn child okay so she's acquitted did her husband take her back just kidding that's probably not something that's in your research she divorces him <laughs> good for her <clears throat> uh she's gonna say i've left my husband he is too slow for me <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she's just kind of not a good person, right? <laughs> like, it's one thing to divorce him. I mean, he should have divorced her. She's on trial for killing another man. <laughs> but then to, like, divorce him and to insult him in the divorce, <laughs> it's just a step too far. I feel like there are so many women in the world who have wanted to use that exact reason (laughs) as grounds for divorce. And the wording has just not been distilled quite so perfectly as I'm leaving him. He's just too slow for me. All right. So in Gartner's case, uh, her lawyer eventually argues that her lover might have been trying to kill himself and that it's so traumatic she like blacks out and that's why she can't remember it. Okay. So she woke up drunk, covered in blood. And her argument is maybe he killed himself? Yes. Well, just in front of me. Yes. And it's so traumatic that she can't absorb that. So again, super sympathetic. Yes. And she's also acquitted. Wow. Uh, Watkins, who has, again, been covering these trials extensively. That's a journalist, okay. Yes. Takes these two stories and then fictionalizes them a little bit and turns them into the basis of Chicago. Okay. However, she says that she feels guilty because she thinks it's her writing that helped contribute to getting these women acquitted. Oh, because of the sob stories. Yes. Oh. She thinks that she's a little too good at her job. So she made them too sympathetic. Yes. And so she feels like, well, it's a great story for her and it's going to turn into this play that she writes. 
Yeah, but she feels like she did too good of a job. Yeah, and and I think that the preconceived notions... That's what I think, too. ...that we have about women... Yes. ...made people very susceptible... Already. ...to believing... What she wrote. ...the sympathetic. Mm -hmm. I I agree. So, sounds like we're able to, again, examine these in a more lighthearted way because of the passage of time. I would think so, yeah. Okay. And because they were all acquitted, so it makes us feel a little bit better that we're not celebrating convicted murderers, even though we're celebrating mostly confirmed murderers. Yes. Okay. I like that. (laughs) Confirmed, not convicted. Uh, So I will tell you, because this is the 1990s is probably where your historical expertise starts to trail off and my true crime expertise starts to pick up. Yes, because that's that, not really history yet. That that the criminal justice system is very easily blindsided by female f- by female criminals because people in the criminal justice system tend to have very specific notions about gender. Yes. And gender stereotypes. And so there are a lot of there is starting to be a lot of research about female criminals and the way that they kind of confound the justice system and also the way they kind of get away with it for a long time. The first female serial killer in this country that we even acknowledge was Eileen Warnos in the 1990s. Yes. The 1990s. And so she's definitely not the first female serial killer, but she becomes kind of the nation's first one that we know about. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, cable news is playing into that. Yeah. So it's not just regional. We're nationwide mm-hmm. learning about her. Yeah. We don't want to turn this into a true crime podcast for a lot of reasons, but she basically made herself so notable that people couldn't ignore her as and couldn't ignore the existence of a female serial killer anymore. Yes. And now, instead of women getting acquitted because of sob stories, it's kind of the reverse in terms of punishment. When women go to jury trials, they tend to get harsher punishments because it tends to be seen as so far outside the norms of human behavior that it's deemed more vicious. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So where all of those stereotypes used to work in women's favor, right. now they don't. Right. Until very recently, the defense about being a victim of domestic violence didn't really work. Because what usually what happens in situations where women attack the people who have been abusing them is that they wait for them, the men to be prone. So like asleep or passed out. Yes. Or even in the shower. So you can't say it was active self-defense, so like premeditated self-defense? Right. So it didn't work as a defense because even though they they were absolutely defending themselves and they were trying to save their own lives and the lives of their children, when they went to trial, it was seen as, well, he wasn't doing anything to you. But the the truth is, that was my only opportunity to do anything about it. Right, because in a lot of those cases, just the physical strength between those two people is not an equilibrium. And the mental kind of power and control dynamics as well. Mm -hmm. So it's only been recent, since like the 90s, that that defense has been working. Probably, I would say too, in certain places and at certain times. Yes. Now we are going to talk about literature. Ooh, I'm excited. Are you? I am, actually. Okay. 
So obviously, and as we talked about in, in a previous episode, there are, are a lot of novels and not just genre fiction, but also literary works that have to do with crime and murder. And most crime writers living today, writing today, are actively working to not play into the kinds of gender stereotypes that have been in literature before, which is that a woman in a crime story is either a victim or a femme fatale. It's very, the victim femme fatale binary is very similar to the binary that we've seen before in works of art, which is like the virgin whore binary that you have to be one or the other. And so women are, of course, as we know, more complex and more multifaceted and more nuanced as people than than a binary. We don't fit into one of two categories. Right. There's um, at least three. There's at least three. <laughs> um, and so people are actively working on on writing women care or female characters who are more complex than that. An example I can give you is from 1916. There's a very brief play. I think it's a one act play called Trifles. I've never heard of this. I teach it all the time. And it's by Susan Glassbell. And it is about a woman who kills her husband. Okay. So here's why this play is interesting. Okay. Physically, in the play, separates the male characters from the female characters. So oh. people come into their home. Okay. I think like the attorney, the, t- the town attorney, had been in the house the day before. And the woman had been like sitting downstairs acting very strangely. And the man was upstairs dead with a rope around his neck. Interesting. And so the wife, Mrs. Wright, I think her name is Minnie. She says, I was asleep. Someone strangled my husband. I don't know what happened. And so the men come in and they go upstairs to search for evidence. And the attorney's wives stay downstairs and talk to the woman. So they're physically separating the men, the two men from the three women. That's interesting. And the, t- the play mostly focuses on what happens downstairs. And what happens is they realize, they piece together from the clues that they see that she had had a bird and that bird is like clearly has been killed. Like oh. crushed. Oh. And this is dark. Yes. And it's a play about and they see other signs of what's been happening in the house. And it kind of goes unspoken. It's but what they realize is that she was kind of living in, in a very oppressed situation within the home. And so what's interesting about it is that they take these things that are very domestic and very female and they use them to solve a crime because the the two women downstairs figure out what happened. He was abusing her. He was oppressing her. He killed her bird. Her bird was, they knew, like, the only thing that really made her happy. Oh, she didn't kill the bird then? No. The husband Uh, killed the bird. Okay. And then she killed him. And then she killed her husband. Interesting. But the women hide all the evidence. Because they see, like, how she was mistreated. Yes. Interesting. And because they know the men aren't going to figure it out. That makes sense. And, well, and they're not attuned to the kinds of signs of domestic unrest that women might be. They can't see the kinds of things that the women are seeing. And so they hide or scatter the evidence. And so she's never tried or convicted for her crimes. So Susan Glassbell wrote this play. And then she wrote a short story called A Jury of Her Peers, which has the same plot. It's just in a short story version. The Jury of Her Peers, referring, of course, to the two women who come in and understand her situation and where she's coming from. And so 
She's neither victim nor femme fatale. And that plays from 1916. And that's really early to start breaking those tropes. Yeah. So Gillian Flynn, you know, she wrote Gone Girl. And she is a very big proponent of showing that women can be as monstrous as men. Her quote is, just pragmatically evil, bad, and selfish women. That we should have those people in literature. Not that we should relate to them or look up to them or want to become them, but that we should have a full range of female characters in literature the same way we have a full range of of male characters in literature. And that's her argument. What tends to happen is that a woman who is violent or a woman who is a criminal or a woman who is villainous is going to have deviant sexual behavior and her role as a female is going to be examined. So she's going to be a bad wife or a bad mother or a bad daughter. She's going to betray all of the gender expectations and she's going to be examined in a very gendered way because we are keeping what she did separate from womanhood. So sure, we can have women who kill in literature, but if we have those women who kill, then we're going to make sure that we depict that they're not really like everyone else. Right. That they are not the essence of womanhood. And the best example I can give you of this is Lisbeth Salander in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is Swedish. It's a trilogy of books, but the first one is the most famous probably because it was made into a movie. And so there's this question of whether she's a feminist creation or a misogynist creation. Part of that question comes from the fact that the book's written by a man. Okay. But she's a strong, take charge female character. She's young, hot, bisexual. She takes revenge on someone who sexually assaulted her. She's hung up on an older guy. It's this very, she's very sexualized. She's supposed to be investigating something, but she kind of just plays right into what I was just saying, which is that if we're going to have a person who's violent, mm-hmm. then we have to say, yeah, but she is wholly separate from all of our ideas of womanhood. Because we don't want to consider the notion that a typical woman or a woman we might know Mm -hmm. could be capable of anything like that, which is very different than males, right? I mean, if you think about like American Psycho, are you familiar with American Psycho? Vaguely. He's hyper-violent killer, but he's also like very typical businessman goes to work, has Mm -hmm. business cards, has drinks with dudes after work. He doesn't have to be subversive in every single way in order to be portrayed as a character. But in order for a female character to be hyper-violent or even really strong and ride a motorcycle, she has to betray all of the things that we might associate with womanhood. Does that make sense? Yes. So that book does not necessarily represent a kind of progress. And there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of that in books by women is that the female character, we're keeping the essence of womanhood separate from women who kill. I mean, we're reducing them to a trope. And sometimes we're, we're locking them into both victim and femme fatale, but we're locking them into very black and white, un-nuanced, is that a word? (laughs) Non-nuanced. It lacks nuance. Right. So basically what we're saying is we don't want to necessarily commingle any of those traits with femininity, submission, kindness, nurturing, being maternal, any of those things that we associate with being a woman. You know, that's an interesting point. If they had been mothers, would we still be as fascinated by them or would we just be horrified 
because how could a mother possibly commit axe murder? But we do think of those things as being completely separate. You are a mother or you're a murderer, but you are not both. That right. Venn diagram yeah. doesn't overlap. Yeah, and, and, and like a character like Lady Macbeth, who is a wife and is, for the most part, a traditionally gender yes. stereotype-fitting woman, she gets someone to commit murder. Well, Larry, that's the downfall, right? She's more ambitious than her husband, and her husband doesn't rein her ambitions in, so look what happens. Right, but she doesn't actually kill anyone. So it's kind of trying to split the difference. Abigail Williams in The Crucible, which is the, yeah, I mean, so it's the same thing, right? She's very feminine, traditionally feminine, and she doesn't commit the murders. She convinces someone else to. She's the catalyst for them. Right, exactly. So again, we're trying to split the difference. I'm going to let you be a feminine, typically feminine character, but you are not going to be violent. Because it's okay to be manipulative, well, all women are in these betrayals, aren't they? <laughs> so next literary villain I want to talk to you about is one of my favorites. Okay. I almost said her at the beginning is Irene Adler. Do you know who that is? Not a clue. No clue? No clue. If I told you she's beautiful, intelligent, and mysterious? I feel like that's the description of every woman in every book ever written by okay. any man. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Beautiful, intelligent, mysterious. Yeah. It sounds like every female, at least from... You said it, written by a man. Victorian, nothing. Keep going. Okay. You're just going to have to tell me who it is, because I'm not going to guess this way. She's one of Sherlock Holmes's arch nemeses. Good for her. But tell me about them. I don't have, how have you missed Sherlock Holmes completely in your life? I am aware of who he is, and he has a funny little hat, and he carries around an eyeglass, and he has a little buddy named Watson. That's what I know about Sherlock Holmes. Some of that is not even accurate, but fine. Okay. So she has similar skills to Sherlock. She's just as smart. And when I say skills, I mean like deduction, looking at things and figuring things out. Um, similar habits. They have some a sort of mutual admiration. So really what we're supposed to think of when we read, I mean, she, I think she's only in one or two Arthur Conan Doyle's original books, is that she's one of the only people smart enough to match wits with Sherlock Holmes. Okay. And she's a woman. So on its face, that sounds great, right? Right. But? Oh, is there a but from the English teacher? There's a but. Here we go. So here's a quote. In Sherlock's eyes, she, quote, eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. Ah, okay. So his experiences with her color his perceptions of all women of all time. Of course. He doesn't ever really use her name. He calls her that woman. Now, some people think it's endearing. Some people find that flirtatious. I think it's very annoying and sexist. Yeah, because does he call any men that man? No. Yeah, then that's the difference right there. Now, Sherlock Holmes is kind of... A weirdo. Scatterbrained in some sense. Like, he doesn't necessarily remember everyone's names, but he would know her name. He's actively refusing to use her name. A good thing about it is in the original books, there's no romance and there's no love interest. So it's not a Mr. Darcy situation where we seem like we hate each other and then we're going to start kissing. Okay. In the remakes and the reboots... They often turn it into that. So they're in the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies. Sure. Did you know that he had Sherlock Holmes nope. movies? <sighs> anyway, in the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies, she and Sherlock have super sexual tension and they make them love interests. Why is she a villain? Because she does bad things. She's, oh. She's a bad. She's so she's not like another detective. No, That's, she's Sorry, a I got, was confused. Because you said she has the similar skills as Sherlock. So I just... Yeah, but she can like outsmart him and trick him. 
She is not a femme fatale. That's okay. good news. She does kind of use her sexuality or her appearance or attractiveness to lure men in, but she's not killing them or putting them in any kind of serious danger. She just outwits them. She steals things. She goes on adventures. At some points in the book, she's called an adventure-s. Oh, well, that's what we have to do, Allegra. <laughs> We put S at the end of everything. That's well, what you, makes it feminine. I mean, yeah, we had murder S row. Yeah. And she's an adventure S. So she's very independent. She marries a lawyer because she loves him, even though there's a king who is trying to court her. Okay. What? No, it's just, it's funny. Which part? The king thing? That, that there'd be a king courting her and she's a villain. I'm sorry. That's funny to me. Well, here's what makes her a villain. So a king is interested in her romantically. She turns down his proposals. She has something of his that he wants back, the king. And she keeps it as a kind of blackmail. The reason she keeps it... So Sherlock is hired by the king to retrieve an object from Irene. Irene is able to trick Sherlock and keep hold of this object. The reason this object is so important to her is she can blackmail the king if she has it. And so it gives her a degree of power over him. And the power that she's exercising over him is not to extort money from him or favors. She's using it to keep him away from her because she wants to marry someone else. So it's like her insurance plan. Right. It's her way of getting this dude to get away from her so that she can marry the person she wants to marry. And so in the story, Sherlock is hired to get this object back from her and she's able to kind of trick him and keep hold of it. Okay. Uh, The BBC show, Sherlock. I'm aware that it exists. Benedict Cumberbatch. On that version, she's a lesbian dominatrix. Oh. And she flirts with Sherlock constantly. She's not as smart as him. She's kind of just in love with him. So is it like a completely different character and they just kept the same name? So if you are going to do a Sherlock Holmes inspired anything, you for some reason have to include Irene Adler. Oh, So every reboot has an Irene Adler. And the BBC version, I suspect because of who wrote the BBC version, is very diminutive. Her depiction is very diminutive. So she, again, is not as smart as him. She's flirting with him, but she's constantly rebuffed by him. When he first meets her, she's completely naked. (laughs) Okay, sure. And so she's like, well, if I'm naked, you can't deduce anything about me, which is just like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right. But let's make her naked because... Why not? I don't know what to tell you. Her de- her depiction in the original sh- in the original story by Sir Arthur so Conan Doyle. So when you said you almost picked her as your favorite, I'm assuming you were talking about the literary version of the her? literary I mean, version, not the not, BBC, not the BBC version. Okay, that's correct. the The original version is more feminist, more progressive, more interesting than the modern day television wow. depiction of her. Interesting. And again, I think it's because of who wrote it, but. I have a whole set of opinions about the person who wrote the (laughs) Sherlock BBC. Whole set of opinions. I mean, and again, her original depiction is not perfect because Sherlock says she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex in my eyes. So it's not like... But it was better than this recent. Right. I mean, and I think that's clever for for Doyle to have done in the original stories. Well, and for the time period, for sure. absolutely. But, you know, it's interesting that in the 2000s, when we're making Robert Downey Jr. movies and the BBC version, that we have to reduce her to a kind of love interest who isn't as smart as him. Yeah. Now, I know you're going to have heard of the next thing we're talking about. Okay. Misery. I haven't read it, but I know what it is. So the book was written in 1987 by Stephen King. The most interesting thing about this book is um, Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Stephen King said that he wrote his worst fears 
his own personal worst fears into the book. Oh, interesting. He was already a very famous, well-known yeah. horror novelist mm-hmm. in the in the 1980s. And he wrote a fantasy novel. And my husband says it's really good. My husband would know. He like reads fantasy novels. And so, but people got really, really mad at Stephen King. And because would, it was like, a horror. And would like yell at him on the street. <laughs> Poor Stephen King. <laughs> because he had dared to write a book that wasn't scary. And so that's what partially inspired this book is that the realization that as a writer, you can inspire such strong feelings in other people that they would accost you verbally or physically. So the premise of Misery is that it's a famous novelist. He uh, is in a car accident. He breaks both of his legs. He's found like in a snowbank by a woman played by Kathy Bates in the movie. Mm hmm. And she pulls him into her house. She is like used to be a nurse or something. And so she takes care of him, sort of. Uh, She gives him a lot of prescription pain medication and makes him a drug addict. And she's keeping him basically hostage. Right. So initially, he is powerless because his legs are broken. He's on pain medication. He doesn't understand why she's not calling the police. Uh, And then through time, he realizes, oh, she's keeping me captive. And really what's happened is he's killed off. He has a manuscript in his car of his latest book. Yes. And she reads it and she realizes that he's killed off her favorite character. And so she's keeping him hostage, gives him a typewriter and says, you have to rewrite the book and bring her back to life. And then she burns the original manuscript. And that's supposed to be so dramatic because you're burning his book. It's not very a positive depiction of women. It's not a very relaxed... A little obsessive. Right. I, I mean, and it's like, it's a playing into a lot of negative tropes of women. Like, she doesn't have cats, but she very <laughs> much has like a crazy cat lady identity. Do, are you not getting crazy cat lady vibes from her? <laughs> no, it's... I, I wouldn't have described it that way until you said it. But yeah, now that's all I'm ever going to see. Yeah. Okay. So she's serious crazy cat lady vibes but also just like obsessive woman who can't tell a difference between fact and fiction very kind the presumption must now be that paul sheldon is dead you dirty bird how could you misery chastain cannot be dead misery spirit is still alive i don't want her spirit i want her and you murdered her you don't think he's dead do you don't even think about anybody coming for you because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. And again, it's not a very good depiction of mental illness. It is remarkable because Kathy Bates' performance in that movie is amazing. It's not necessarily that she makes it relatable, but she brings a kind of vulnerability to the role. So it's not that we're supposed to feel sorry for her. It's not that we're supposed to end up on her side. She's definitely the the villain, but she makes it human. Right. And that's very hard to do. And so the writing of her character is not necessarily very nuanced, but her portrayal is. Does that make sense? It does. And she won an Oscar for it. Oh, good for her. I'll, I want to talk to you about another book I'm sure you've never read and never heard about. Okay. But it's real creepy. Okay. It's called We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Never heard of it. By Shirley Jackson. Love her. 1962. Love everything about her. We talk, we've talked about her previously. She wrote The Lottery. And she I did love write that. The Lottery. 
I love that short story. My students don't care for it. Really? Mm-hmm. It's so good. I don't like it. So it's a very dark. We have always lived in the castle. Okay. It's a very dark, weird book about cousins living together in exile. Okay. There was a trap. So it's two sisters and their uncle. So there are no cousins involved. Well, I guess a cousin comes. It doesn't matter. <laughs> There's been a tragedy. Do you want to start that over? Nope, I like it. I'm going with it. There's been a tragedy in their family, and the book is kind of a mystery to figure out what happened back then, okay. years before. The people in town hate the family, and only one of the sisters, her name's Mary Cat, only she ever leaves the house. And so she goes like twice a week to get like book, groceries and books stuff. from the library, groceries. And so as you read, you get drawn into, it's like a character study. You get drawn to their relationships, but you're also slowly getting information about what happened in the past. There's definitely a sense in the book that the family is being othered by the town. Okay. That there's a sense of persecution. And you get that same sense from other Shirley Jackson books. Yeah. That the villagers are kind of small minded and reject anything out of the ordinary. And almost to a point where you're like, a tragedy happened to them but because they're associated with tragedy they're rejected by the town i mean all these elements are in the lottery and the haunting of hill house Mm -hmm. right the sense of persecution the othering that kind of small-minded villager situation so it's written by a woman it's a story primarily about women it's very interesting complex female characters they're not mothers they're not wives they're not whores they're not virgins they're just people if That's you can, a crazy idea. If you can imagine that, they're just human people with feelings, experiences, emotions, and reactions to situations. They're not really even in romantic relationships. They're sisters and they have an uncle. Now, I'm not saying they're role models as characters. I'm not saying that we read it and say, I want to grow up to be these people. But We're talking the... about lady criminals. Nobody we've talked to about okay. today is a role model. I think we could just lay that on the table very clearly. That's true. Don't be Lizzie Borden. But the audacity to write this book is remarkable uh, on Shirley Jackson's part. So they're not crazy cat ladies. They don't... We need to do a whole episode about crazy cat ladies. That's fine. Everyone would love it. Uh, they don't fit into any kind of preconceived mold. Okay. In fact, Shirley Jackson based them on her own daughters. Oh. Just like not the bad things they do but their personalities that's really interesting and their relationships to each other and i don't want to necessarily tell you what happens or even who is bad and who is not bad because it's good and they just released a movie version last year oh okay with crispin glover playing the creepy old uncle crispin glover from back to the future are you even a person i just googled this book and uh, do you know that the cover has a cat on it does it really (laughs) yes (laughs) You're like, they're not crazy cat ladies, but there's cat. Okay. And also you said the main character was Mary Cat. And I thought like Mary Catherine, but it's not. It's M-E-R-R-I cat. I think her name is Mary Catherine and they call her Mary Cat. Okay. But there's a lot of cat references here. Yeah. Yeah. But. I'm going to read this book. I'm it's interested. It's very good. I would recommend it just because it's a very well-written book by a female author that has clear themes and nuanced characters. But also there's some bad stuff that happens. I'm not going to tell you what it is. We are revealing truths, emotional truths about human nature through fictional contrived circumstances. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about TV. There are lots of female villains, of course, on TV shows. If we think about shows we've talked about before, CSI Bones, they have episodes uh, or even multi-episode arcs where they are chasing after a female bad guy. Bad guy. Isn't that funny that the term is bad guy? (laughs) <laughs> what I really want to talk about... Well, if you say bad girl, it sounds sexualized. And so... 
Yeah. That's it's, problematic for is, me. Isn't it? But why why is that? Why is it that bad guy sounds like criminal and bad girl sounds like something that's sexual? Why? There it should be neutral. It should be, but it's not. Okay, so the real reason I want to talk about TV is because I think a discussion about anti-heroes is going to crystallize what we're trying to say here. So an anti-hero, are you aware? Yes. Is a protagonist, meaning the main character of a story, whom we are meant to relate to and root for. Yes. Is bad in some objective. Or has done bad things. Right. Is in some objective way. So they are a criminal or a liar or they're misrepresenting themselves. But we are still meant to be rooting for them and relating to them as humans. And so the crimes they commit are really allegorical when we are interpreting the text. It's an allegorical crime. So in real life, we're not going to root for mobsters and meth dealers. But if we look at at the story as an allegory, we can root for them and relate to them and see them as people. So The Sopranos is probably the, one of the first m- big ones. Yes. Tony Soprano, Breaking Bad. For sure. Dexter, Mad Men, Walking Dead, Mr. Robot. That's about hacking, but yeah. it's still the same thing. <laughs> I don't know why I need to mimic typing on a keyboard while I say the word hacking, but I do. House of Cards, The Wire, Sons of Anarchy. So all these shows feature male antiheroes. Yes. And if you look up TV antiheroes, those are shows you're going to get. But there are female antiheroes as well. Okay. Game of Thrones started in 2011. There's dragons. There's dragons. That's that's the extent of my knowledge. You know something about it. So the last season is coming on this year. Oh, okay. There's a character on that show. There are several strong female characters on the show. And what's great is that they're all very different. Yeah, you've talked about this show being both progressive and problematic for you. Yes. I don't remember what episode, but I know that we've talked about so, this. So, I mean, there's there's Daenerys, who is a kind of almost a sex slave in the beginning and then becomes a liberator of slaves and a very powerful. She's the one with the dragons. Oh, okay. She she becomes one of the most powerful people in the show. And her like right-hand person is another woman. Cersei Lannister is a villain. Uh, but there are... There are positive female characters. There are female characters in, you know, leading role. It's an ensemble show, so there's not one star. But there are, you know, strong female characters in a variety of ages from like 12 to in their 80s, all being depicted in different ways in the show. So in that way, it's really great. Do you know about weeds? She sells weed because I think I'm going to get this confused with Breaking Bad because her family needs money. Yeah, her husband died. Okay. So they live in like a big suburban like McMansion and they drive Range Rovers and her husband was the breadwinner. Right. And she was like the yoga mom. Oh, okay. And so when he dies, she's trying to keep them in their house. Okay. And so she starts selling weed. How to get away with murder. I watched the first season of this actually. It's very confusing. <laughs> I stopped watching after the first season. Because of its complexity or its violence or... I like complex shows. I like dark shows. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to feel like everything that happens is just contrived for the plot. Yeah. And that's where I felt like this show was at. Yeah. Like nothing is organically happening. And Scandal. Again, I know what it is, but never watched it. So she... I mean, it's like a political drama. And she does a lot of things that are 
not aspirational, let's say. <laughs> I mean, she does a lot of things that are amazing. She's a strong, amazing character, but she also like commits fraudulent acts and is willing to hide crimes for people. So your question, Misty, was where am I going with this? Why would I bring up Cersei Lannister and a pot dealer? Because we need female antiheroes in books, on TV shows, and in movies. First reason is because an antihero is a protagonist, and we need more stories with female protagonists. Okay. But moreover, they're complex. I mean, the reason that people still talk about Breaking Bad and Dexter and The Wire is because there is so much complexity to the character. You can still have an argument about why Walter White did what he did in certain scenes of Breaking Bad because it's a super complex, well-developed character. Well, there's evolution over time. Right. So having bad traits makes them more realistic in some way. The fact that a person is not just wholly good and virtuous makes them more realistic. Now, does selling drugs make them aspirational? No. But not all characters have to be role models. Right. And not all char- not all anti-heroes have to be, you know, murderers and drug dealers. You know, some of them can be just not wholly virtuous people. Women don't all feel the need to be good and to be liked all the time. And no. What? <laughs> uh, it's funny. Why? Just because we are two female professors. Yeah. Doing a podcast about feminism. Yeah. And the fact that you just say not all women need to be liked all the time is funny to me. Saying that we definitely opened ourselves up to not be liked oh, all the time by doing this. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. It took me a minute to catch up. Because yeah. the, the reaction we get, you do a podcast about feminism? Yeah. Ugh. Like that exact reaction from people who work. Yeah. it's We can talk about them. They're not going to listen. So it's fine. Um, but anyway, women are often depicted as needing to be liked, needing to be good, needing to be perfect, needing to get it all right, needing to decorate for Christmas perfectly. Not all women feel that way. Not all women feel like they need to be liked. Women are lots of times willing to do things that are not unanimously approved of. Right. There's more than one kind of power. There's more than one kind of strength. Women can get power from, guess what, places other than their sexuality or their attractiveness. Having a female antihero gets us to examine women's experiences and their motives. And danger, this is an idea that Flannery O'Connor had, but that danger and violence are really personality crucibles, which means, again, you look at the actual violence as an allegory, but that's the true essence of uh, who a person is, if that's how they respond in an all-stakes situation. And so we get lots of gray areas. And so by the very nature of having gray areas, we have to break women out of stereotypical roles. Yes. Antiheroes define themselves as opposed to female characters who are lovers, mothers, wives, and girlfriends. And they have a deep, rich character. They get full backstories. They have full names. They drive... <laughs> names? Yeah. I, well, you you know what, Misty? You know the show Big Bang Theory? Yes. Do you know that the one of the female leads, her character, didn't ever have a last name? No way. Well, that's infuriating. Which makes it remarkable... <laughs> When women get full names. It sh- okay, it should not be. Oh, how far we have to go. And, and female anti-heroes drive the story. So I would argue that we need more of them because they offer us 
different ways to see female characters. No one is arguing that we need to be more like any of them in terms of their criminal activity, but maybe we do need to be more like them in other ways, right? Nancy Botwin in Weeds, I'm not telling you to go sell weed, but I am telling you if you find yourself in a situation where you're seemingly powerless and hopeless, finding your own way is a type of empowerment. Right. That's amazing. Yes. Now, should you engage in criminal enterprise? No. But again, look at those things as allegorical story elements, not as the truth. I hope I'm not getting too English teachery. For no, you. I don't think you are. With the exception of the shows by Shonda Rhimes, those are all straight, white, able-bodied, affluent women who all look very typically feminine and attractive. So the fact that we have some good examples of female antiheroes does not mean that we have come all the way. Right. And to bring that back to why that's important, having those fictional portrayals be more realistic allows us to see real life in a more nuanced way. Absolutely. So that when somebody is accused of murder, you are able to see them as a human being. Right. And not say, well, acquit them because it's because tragic. She's a girl. Or over sentence them because how could she? Yes. Yeah. So, Allegra, what's next in your lady life? Uh, I'm going to Las Vegas in February for a conference, so I should probably get ready for that. Yeah, probably. What about you? I'm actually prepping for a presentation in Galveston coming up in March. Actually, I think you're going to go too, but not for my presentation. Well, I'll probably watch it. Heckle. Yeah. I've decided from now on I'm only going to conferences attached to beaches. That's my new academic standard. That's a good idea. I've been to two in Florida, so I can approve of your plan. (laughs) Because the one I went to in Arizona was just not that happening. I told you. Well, I tried. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and if you're looking for another podcast, I recommend What's Her Name? And I'm Allegra, and I'm going to recommend the podcast Pop Culture Mythology. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Pretty great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email at the same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing those things. And we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, gender stereotypes are deadly.